I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we look at concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers, few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. This is an emergency episode called Live from the 50s. Why an emergency episode? Well, there are a couple of reasons, ranging from uh, work obligations to, that's, you know, sort of like actual job obligations to family medical obligations to um, the planned Leah Haley episode turning into even more of a rabbit hole than I expected. So we're putting that off for a little bit just to buy ourselves some breathing room. So what do we have here? What do we have here? We have one of the topics that I've been keeping in my back pocket for a time when I needed it. What I have are three clips from the 1950s. Um, Truman Bethram from 1954, George Adamski from 1957, and Ivan Sanderson talking in 1959 to Long John Nebel about the Flatwoods Monster, which we explored all the way back in like our second or third episode or something like that. These episodes are all from the Faded Discs collection, which was put together by Wendy Connors, and much of it is available now at the Internet Archive at um, archive.org. I put a link in the show notes to um, sort of the biggest sort of collection of it I could find. There's a lot of good stuff, and as I said in the show notes, I chose these three clips for their um, manageable length. Uh, some of these things get pretty long. You've got sort of hour-long uh, lectures or four-hour-long um, sort of radio programs and things like that, which really are very difficult to sort of find interesting, manageably-sized bits from. So these are all sort of self-contained things that are of listenable length. Just to give you a preview, the Bethram and Adamski clips are about 10 minutes each, and uh, Ivan Sanderson talking about Flatwoods goes on for about 36 minutes, and we'll look at them in more detail as we get to each one. So thank you for indulging in an uh, emergency episode, and let's get started. First up, we have Truman Bethram in 1954 talking with uh, radio host Nancy Allen uh, about his book, Aboard a Flying Saucer. And I was not able to find out really anything about Nancy Allen. I'm not sure who she is, um, but uh, she's a good interviewer. And Bethram comes across very well here, I think. And this clip really does give a good summary of the sort of contacty point of view on the development of our space brethren and sistren. Um, hi, Aura Reigns, if you're out there. Um, really sort of very concisely and well. So let's listen to Truman Bethram and Nancy Allen. Hello. This is our book review day, and I have only two books to talk about with you today because I have an interview that I'm going to get into after we've just mentioned the book. This second one, which we will get to in a moment, is called Aboard a Flying Saucer, and uh, obviously you know this is going to be a highly controversial subject. Uh, I have the author in the studio with me, and we're going to talk to him very shortly, but before we get into this strange and challenging subject, I'd like to talk to you for a moment about something much more familiar and close to us. And now to get to our second book, uh, Aboard a Flying Saucer, written by Mr. Truman Betherum. You know, in this 20th century, I think most of us would acknowledge that it's a mistake to say anything is impossible. But we have become so skeptical that perhaps the pendulum has swung from the complete credulity of, say, a couple of hundred years ago when people were... Uh, ready to accept anything. Now we have come to the point where it's difficult to accept anything at all unless we can touch it and feel it and smell it and call it concrete. Well, this book, Aboard a Flying Saucer, is Mr. Bethram's true experiences 
of a meeting with space people from the planet Clarion. He was out in the desert one night when this spaceship landed and he talked to the woman captain and her crew of men. He tells that these people who spoke English incidentally were Christian, that they had overcome the forces of gravity, that they traveled without any apparent motive power that he could see. They were dressed in a rather odd fashion. They uh, spoke in high sing-song voices but spoke perfect idiomatic English. Well, as a consequence of these experiences, Mr. Betheram found himself in trouble with his family, at least some of it. Uh, he found his friends incredulous and um, somewhat scoffing on the subject, and it, he refers to it as the most difficult period in his life. Well, he has been kind enough to come up here today and talk to us, and I would like to ask him some questions, if you'll permit me, Mr. Betheram. You know, the first thing I'd like to ask you is if you were interested in this subject of... Um, space travel and the people who might exist on other planets not, before you had this experience? Not at all. I have never in my life bought or read a science fiction magazine and I wouldn't have believed my own mother had she been alive and told me that uh, this thing could exist one second before I saw it. I wouldn't have believed her. I would have laughed at her. I see. That was that unreal to me until I actually saw it. Then you can That's, easily appreciate how, how it must seem to others. Certainly I can. Who hear your story. I, I really understand it when they seem that, uh, to act as though it's incredulous. Well, Mr. Bethroom, when I read the book, the thing that occurred to me, I think, at the end, uh, most forcefully, was this. Now, on the one hand, you had had this incredible experience, which had you very excited, almost doubting your own sanity. That's right. And on the other hand, you had people who were making fun of you and questioning your truthfulness. That's well, right. the second time that you met these space people, um, why didn't you get something that, that you could show them to prove? I mean, some concrete thing to take back with you. I tried that uh, even from the first time. I told them nobody on this planet would believe such a thing, that I could hardly believe it was true myself. Mm -hmm. And they said, we know we're real, and you know we're real. I said, it doesn't seem real to me. It doesn't seem possible. And it doesn't seem possible that you could be real human flesh. And she said, yes, if you don't believe so, you feel my flesh and see. And I asked them for something concrete to show to the people. And she said, possibly, as sometimes, she may give me a picture. I tried to take a picture after the... I didn't have a camera with me the first time, but after that, I carried one almost day and night. Well, did these and, pe people feel that it was important at all that... Uh that we know about them, we here uh, on the Earth? They did. They seemed to think it was important, but they weren't anxious in proving it to, to anybody. Let people mm -hmm. find it out for themselves. And uh, many, many people have seen them. They found the place where it sat down in the desert, and uh, they've seen the people come into a restaurant or seen them in the restaurant. They didn't see them either come in or leave, but they saw them in there. Mm -hmm. When they left, uh, they uh, left as mysteriously as they arrived. Well, you were saying in the book, if I have it correct, that these people in there on Clarion that there was no disease, no death, no um, no concept of time and space as uh, we have it, no th problems of any kind? That's right. They did not mention death, but uh, they told me that they lived, uh, the woman captain told me she expected to be around for a thousand years. And I asked her if she knew our time and mm -hmm. uh, distance and colors and directions and things like that, if she was understanding exactly what she was saying to me and, and what I said to her, and she said she certainly did. That. Uh, life was different on their planet than here to that extent. Mm -hmm. Well, I should think if they had so much to offer us that they would have wanted to introduce themselves and uh, let us benefit from all of these. Uh, well, I'm pretty sure when the right time comes, uh, they told me as long as there was any strife on this planet, we would not have space travel. But mm -hmm. uh, as soon as we were aware that strife was uh, non-existent as far as necessity was concerned, then we would have peace and uh, that they would have a message to help us with not one nation against another but all nations together and they would live all the nations here will uh, live as one race of people mm -hmm. with one religion uh, it, they'd live in that manner and strife will not be a reality very long mm -hmm. y you mean one universe right? uh, yes one uh, world? the uh, other planets and this planet here in connection would all live a universal peace mm -hmm. and we have had our last major war i'm sure well, I certainly hope you're right in that respect, I'm, I'm Mr. sure Bethram. from what they said. Mr. Bethram, what is your theory of why people are so reluctant to accept your story? I had a minister. I read his uh, sermon, uh, and he said uh, he was going to talk about space people coming and saving the people here in case of disaster. Mm -hmm. I uh, phoned him and gave him a book, and later he told me he didn't believe in it. And I asked him why, and he says, I don't believe in anything that I can't see and put my hand on. I said, have you ever seen or put your hand on God? And he said, no. I said, then what are you preaching about? He says, I really don't know now. 
So people are that way. Actually, we don't know what to believe or what not to believe. Well, it's true that all new ideas have never had an easy time amongst human beings. And I might mention here, incidentally, that perhaps some of you have read Frank Scully's book, uh, Behind the Flying Saucer. Yes, there has recently been one published by a retired Marine major, Major Keyhole, uh, about a flying saucer. Life magazine covered the subject quite, um, well, let us say, um, neutrally, not coming to any conclusions, but presenting the evidence for and against in their magazine. True Magazine has also done that, and it is um, a very controversial subject. It is not by any means just dismissed by people who think seriously on this subject. I'm sure that uh, all air forces in the United States, all air force bases, are well aware of uh, UFOs, as they call them, coming from other planets are extra there are extraterrestrial they're metallic and they're intelligently controlled mm -hmm. each air force base in the united states i'm sure is aware of that well mr bethram you mentioned that uh, i think the thing that impressed me more than anything else is concrete evidence of something strange and it seems mm -hmm. a shame you didn't say that were your uh, clothes, the clothes that you were wearing, if I got it right, That's you leaned right. against the spaceship and later you found that they disintegrated. That's right. Did you save the clothes? Uh, I took them out to the job to show to the men on the job and I expected just to use them for wiping rags mm -hmm. and nobody would use them. They laid there for several weeks and finally disappeared. Did you ever take and them to a laboratory for no, analysis? No, I never thought it was of that importance. For mm -hmm. some reason, uh, the people that have had this uh, opportunity to talk to these people have never actually got anything uh, beneficial to prove that they are, have actually talked to these people. I had a note given, given to me in Chinese and also one in French, mm -hmm. and I have them uh, photostatted and put in the book. Were those and, analyzed uh, in a laboratory? Is no, it a kind of typewriter? Or? No, it is a, apparently American typewriter. They told me they could pass as the people of any nation wherever they were mm -hmm. at, and they would use the implements of that. You, you said that they, they communicated with each other telepathically, didn't you? Uh, also vocally. They did uh, both ways. Mm -hmm. I, I know that uh, they could do it without voice and with voice also. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would just say that they have developed a science and a knowledge higher than mm -hmm. ours. They told me that the Earth planet was the newest and lowest in evolvement. Yes, and it is the only planet that they know of that is inhabited, that does not have space travel, and that has any strife, whatever. It's something and, of a blow to human conceit. Uh, yes, they were not very uh, happy about the situation on Earth here. They also told me that uh, through... Uh, mental telepathy or uh, thought transference that they could prevent wars and things like that. And uh, I think now that they have actually done it, even with our president. He is the first one that has ever had a secretary of peace. And I'm sure he would deny it, but I, I'm also very sure that they have put that thought into his mind. Mr. Bethram, you had 11 meetings with these yes, people from Clarion? Yes, ma'am. 11 separate contacts with them. And these were recorded in your book. Have you had any meetings since the book was published? Uh, I have seen the people several times and uh, on the streets, and I've seen the spacecraft over my home and in the air over different locations. It's mm -hmm. been reported over towns where I spoke at the uh, exact time I was speaking, in fact. But I have not seen them uh, to get to talk they to them. Landed again in they haven't landed to where I could talk to them mm -hmm. on their spacecraft. I've seen them on the street and I've seen them in meetings, I'm sure, also, but I could not get to them to have a talk with them. They would mm -hmm. just disappear when you try to talk to them. They would either have just be leaving or have something else to do. Well, these um, these experiences and the publication of your book, Mr. Bethram, have meant an entire new life for you, haven't they? It has, and uh, it hasn't benefited me financially, I can tell you that. A lot of people thought, well, I had it said uh, one time that I was making as much money as uh, this famous piano player, and uh, <laughs> uh, actually, I've I made... Liberace. Liberace, yes. I made much more money working at construction work, which mm -hmm. is my really happy, uh, my happy way of earning a living, but uh, I believe I have a message for the people of the world in this book, and I'm going to follow it through. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Mr. Bethram, it's been kind of well, you to come up and talk well, to us, you, and Nancy. what you say is certainly, well, interesting is a rather inadequate word. Every but word in that book is true. Thank you for coming up, Mr. Thank Bethram. You. And we Thank might you. mention here, incidentally, that Mr. Bethram will be at Dodgson's Bookstore this afternoon. The address is 2238 to Street. Uh, he will be um, autographing copies of his book. So why don't you drop over, if you have the afternoon free, to Dodgson's Bookstore. You can meet Mr. Bethram, get a copy of his book, and he will autograph it for you. Those two books that I spoke to you about at the opening of the program were by second, of course, Mr. Truman Bethram's Aboard a Flying Saucer. Thank you for being with us today. See you tomorrow.
that was nice. I like that piano music. That's that's nice and soothing. I need that this week. Um, next up, we have uh, we have the uh, the uh, the granddaddy of the contactees, George Adamsgate, speaking at the Michigan Flying Saucer Federation convention in 1957. So he's been on the scene a while. Um, his big book, Inside the uh, or Inside the Spaceships, uh, has been published, and that's sort of his his massive account of his travels and meetings with various space people. So he's a known quantity, especially to uh, the hardcore crew that would be at the Michigan Flying Saucer Convention in 1957. In this 10-minute clip, we have Adamski talking about what he's learned from the space people, but um, it's not necessarily what we might expect. It's a little more about the cosmic science side of things. So it's it's interesting, and it's, I think, a little more interesting to listen to than it is to read sometimes. Let's take a listen. Next gentleman really needs no introduction. He's well known, Detroit area, author of The, new, uh, the uh, Flying Saucers Have Landed and Inside Spaceships. It's my privilege to present Mr. George Adamski, Valley Center, California. Well, folks, I'm mighty glad to be here, even if it was a tough time getting here due to the storms and one thing or another. And I want to tell you, it's more than a pleasure to be here, to see all these faces and the interest. And to tell you, for once in all time, that is a group interested in knowledge of outer space and relationship with all the cosmos, Detroit stands first as the largest, biggest group in the world. And I believe that as it goes on, it's going to be even greater. There is no stopping to this. We just begin to unfold slightly. And another thing I must say, it was Detroit for the eastern seaboard that have actually started the ball rolling to begin with. And it's not going to be the last one. It'll always remain first in growth in every which way. The groups that are gathered here together, there are two groups of flying saucers in Detroit, and while there could be many, regardless how many, they should act and live and work as one, always as one. Then in that manner, they will uh, do away what sometimes comes to the newcomer as a confusion, misunderstanding, and growth is stunned at that point. The Flying Saucer Project is not a project of flying saucer of a mechanical device, but rather is a condition that is taking place in our time that affects the whole world, economically, socially, religiously, politically. In every way, there is not a phase of human life upon this planet that will not be affected. It has already done so. If the flying saucers were to vanish from sight or appearance, altogether they would never be forgotten by this civilization. They could not be forgotten, for this is one thing that did happen that few people realize. Even the greatest skeptic on the face of the earth today may not come along and join your group while he's on a sideline watching the, the developments. He has been alerted to one thing that no man on this earth since Christ's time had been alerted, and that is that there are other planets that hum with life equally as this one. And while he doesn't fully accept everything that I might say, the next fellow says, he, the potentials are constantly agitating his mind torch realization that eventually will come and he knows that but doing this process which is the major part that everyone should be alerted to and that is this medically speaking scientifically speaking it has been said that our brain 
which is the part of a mind, had been only activated into about 10%, 90% yet to be developed. 10% development and all the marvelous things we have done. Sure, we made mistakes. We're good people. We're not bad people. And give us 10 years, we'll catch up with Venus, if we go the right way. But, speaking of the 10%, going in 90% yet vacancy that can be developed, this what you'll notice will be happening. And it's already happening. Not only to those that follow the flying saucer adventure, or development, but it's happening to people that have nothing to do with the sources whatever. It's a universal effect. And that is, these people that don't believe in saucers or haven't given any thought to saucers have been alerted in spite of themselves with the potential that something might be there. And as a result, they no longer look to the little earth for all the knowledge that they had been getting from and were looking to the little earth before. The expansion of their mind has taken place to the cosmos, the potentials of other worlds, inhabitants of other worlds, the geophysical year which starts this month, July the 1st, is also alerted, all in connection together, that the cells that have been dead in our minds or in our head there was no use for them, we have not used them, lay dormant there till a time came for them to wake up and help along with the others that had been active. And this is the way it's happening. The interest that is risen in speculative field or factual field has caused the brain to expand. Those cells that were silent have become activated. I get so many reports, that's why I want to speak of this at this moment, I think it's the proper time. I get so many letters, people saying, I've gotten a code system in my mind, code ticking in my brain, and uh, what is happening? And they don't understand, go somebody, they don't understand, they tell them it's this or that and something else, which is not always right. You'd be amazed, I have a colonel coming up to me has happened to him. He's in the Air Force. And things like that. But what has really taken place? The cells that were dormant all this time have come to life. That's not all the 90%. That's only maybe half a percent awake and up beyond that which you've been using. But you have never, is a feeling as a mind, have never been accustomed to that newness. You've been brought up a certain way. Now here's a cell opening up and begin to act. And you feel it for the first time. You recognize it for the first time because it's the first time it's in action. And it gives you this pulsation system which is known as dots and dash system. And if you don't understand it, you might place it most any place which would be the wrong place in each case. Or when you find a case like that, or you should yourself get in a case of condition like that, and you will, and that's happening everywhere, all you have to do, put your fingers on your pulse, and you'll notice the rhythm is the same, which will prove to you beyond a shadow of any doubt that the activity, the pulsation of the cell has taken place and while you never known it before because it was not active, now it's active and it's new and it's to you. And if you didn't know that, you'd have name it something else. There's so much of that going on today. As a result, I've known of some cases recently happening that have landed in the psycho wards because somebody told them it was something else than what it really was. And they went on that beam. But that's all it is. Just the same if your finger had been dead for a long time, you have not felt it, and all of a sudden would come to life, would make you feel quite strange, wouldn't it? You'd begin to feel it for a first time after it's been dead a long time. Or somebody that had not been able to walk ever since Burton had suddenly begin to walk would be strange to him. Well, the same thing with that cell. That's what has taken place. And unless you understand it, you can get yourself in an awful mess, and many of them have. 
So I thought I would speak of it this afternoon on that point because it is very important. None of us want to go off the beam, and off the beam will not be of any help to the saucer or anything else. Got to stay with feet on the ground, right solid on the ground, and work from here up. I like this idea, which is in the Bible, where it says, Swear not by the earth, for that's the Father's footstool, nor by the heavens, for that's his throne. And so keep your feet on the ground. You are unlimited as far as going above is concerned. The above is unlimited. But with your feet on the ground, and you needn't fear anything, regardless what state of research you go into or what you take up. That's one thing I would like to say at this time, and the rest of it I'll leave it for this evening. Thank you very much. Adamski really was a good speaker. He did a great job of sort of putting over the hometown Detroit crowd there at the beginning. Um, and the acoustics weren't bad as well, although from the um, from the car horns that we heard occasionally, I, I kind of wonder if it was held in some sort of outdoor warehouse or uh, depending on what time of year, and I'm not sure the time of year, the windows were open. That could explain the traffic noise. So some announcements. Uh, next time, this is the plan anyway, is going to be our episode about Leah Haley. Um, unless I shuffle things around again, we'll see uh, We'll see what happens. Um, you can check out past episodes and read some reviews of saucer-related stuff and support the show at saucerlife.com. Thanks very much to those who've donated in the past. It's much appreciated. It's uh, how I bought my copy of all the Leah Haley books that I did not have a chance to read as quickly as I wanted to. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com or contact us by post at Chizomedia, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. The Saucer Life, um, as I assume you know, is available anywhere you can find podcasts or at the website or, I don't know, I don't know, it's probably in record stores or something. Let's... uh Let's talk about Flatwoods and Ivan Sanderson. Ivan Sanderson was a scientist, a biologist, I think, uh, from, I want to say, Scotland. And although this is a, a UFO podcast, I will say Sanderson was a more of a cryptid cryptozoology person. Um, his books like Invisible Residence were sort of foundational texts about cryptozoological subjects. Um, he lived from, I did look this up, 1911 to 1973. And um, one of the facts that I, I I always remember about Sanderson, and I can't remember where I read this, although with my luck, it's somewhere stupid like Wikipedia, is that his father was killed by a rhinoceros in Kenya. I, I, do, uh, I do remember that. In this, uh, in this clip, and it's a little longer, it's about 35 minutes, Sanderson is talking to um, Long John Nebel, the radio host who had the overnight UFO and other sub, many other subjects, but he had many UFO people on. It's a radio show from New York City. This is from 1959, and it's Sanderson revisiting his investigation of the Flatwoods Monster case from West Virginia. And because I can't read my handwriting and I don't have time to go back and edit it where I actually edit the whole show to make it chronological order. This was 1956, not 1959. So sorry, we're not quite in chronological order. But all that aside, here is Ivan Sanderson and Long John Nebel from 1956. This morning we're talking with Ivan Sanderson the gentleman that investigated the West Virginia monster. And we have Walter Rochette with us, and we also have Donald Cohn with us. Now, Hugh McPherson, he's been very interested in getting the facts about the famous West Virginia monster. I think Gray Barker was the author of a book they knew too much about flying saucers. And if I'm not mistaken, Ivan, you investigated the Greg, West Virginia Monster. Gray and I were there at the same time, as a matter of fact, along with a lot of other newspaper reporters. Well, now we're taping this portion of this morning's show, and we're going to send this tape down to Hugh McPherson. Right. Incidentally, Hugh McPherson has a minor bird that works with him on the program. Oh, yes, sir. I know his name, and I know his work, too. A good minor bird, yes. 
Well, supposing you tell us something about the West Virginia monster. Are you ready with the tape? Um, well, it's going right now. Uh-huh. Well, um, do I'd like to try and put it in a nutshell as follows as I did before. First of all, uh, I went down there about five or six days after the account took place as a request of the North American Newspaper Alliance, uh, for whom I do some reporting work with special uh, representation, and also on behalf of Two Magazine. It was Ken Purdy of Two Magazine who when running out of his office one day on some private business, uh, picked at random out of a mass of clippings that used to come to his desk every every day a, a perfectly ridiculous statement that a 12-foot uh, green monster with red glowing eyes had been seen on a mountaintop at Fatwood uh, in, uh, um, I think it's Saxon County, isn't it? Uh, West Virginia. I didn't know I was going to be asked to tell you about this tonight, so if my names are wrong, forgive me. And he gave this report, Ken Purdy, to John DuBarry of Two Magazine, who was their aviation editor and was interested in flying saucers and such, and said, get a hold of Ivan Sanderson, have him get down there and see what this is all about. Ken Purdy had an absolute genius of picking a news story. So I was rung up and asked to go down. So my assistant, uh, Eddie Schoenenberger, and I, we jumped in an old taxi cab we had at the time, and we, we took off. I may say that on the way down, we went through the worst rainstorm that I have witnessed anywhere in the world, and I've lived in Assam, and I've lived in on right on Cape de Buncher in West Africa, which are the two points of highest rainfall in the world, but I have never seen rain like we had on the, um, on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Well, we rolled into that was the next morning. That's Flatwood, West Virginia? Yeah. Saxon County, I think it is, and County, West Virginia. It's in the mountains. It is north of Charleston, uh, West Virginia. How did now, the roads there compare with those in Europe? Uh, what, in the hills? Hmm. Oh, excellent. They have uh, very good motor roads going through. Of course, there are an enormous number of little, um, um, what you call it, roads, uh, dirt roads going up to the hills because there's been extensive mining throughout that entire area. If you fly over it, you will see uh, mine heads and mine shafts everywhere, and the tops of these of these wooded hills are completely covered with these dirt roads. Well, to make a long story short, this is what we found out during our investigations. There were a number, there were 14, all told, a uh, number of young, uh, young people, uh, kids and uh, up to the age of 14, who were playing football on a small um, field in the bottom of a little valley in the village of Flatwood. The village of Flatwood is at one end of this little valley. It's ringed around by mountains, as uh, you down there will probably know better than I do, uh, or our other listeners up here. Now, through this valley runs a road, a blacktop road, going from north to south, also a railway line, a railway track. And at the opposite end of this little valley to the village is a small um, railroad station. And there is a dirt road that crosses the rail tracks uh, leading off the, off the blacktop just by that rail station, then curves up round the back of one of these mountains and uh, sort of peters out uh, at a field. And up that road, stuck on the side of this hill, I would say the very stony hill, are a number of uh, dwellings. Up on the top, at the back of the mountain, there are four or five other larger houses. One of those houses is occupied by a family by the name of May. Uh, the lady, Mrs. May, if I remember right, is principally concerned in this affair. These kids were playing uh, just before sundown, uh, down on this field at the bottom of the village. And one of the kids looked up, and one of the little ones, uh, I differentiate between kids and young people, uh, the kids, the five, six, seven-year-olds, and the young people above that, you see. One of the kids looked up and he said, uh, in so many words, what on earth is that? And they all looked around and round, round the edge of a hill, uh, behind the village, the north of the village, uh, but lower than the peak of that hill, or the one opposite, came a, a pear-shaped glowing red object which was pulsing from cherry red to bright orange, according to all the witnesses. It was traveling blunt end first. It traveled quite slowly across the valley over their heads and just managed to top the mountain on the other side or the hill on the other side of the valley, which is that hill 
behind which there are these dwellings of which I spoke a moment ago. Well, the kids all said, um, as I say, gee, what was that? And one of the elder boys, whose name was Nun, a very, very intelligent boy of eight, uh, 14 years old, had uh, remembered that at school that they had been asked if they saw a meteor or anything like that and saw anything fall from the sky that, that the geological survey would be interested in getting uh, the remains of it or anything that was found on the ground. And he said, come on, that may be a bolide or something and something looks as if it's landed behind that hill because I must point out, yes, I'm sorry, that the kids all state categorically that this object, this large glowing object, which appears to be about the size of a house, seemed to pause when it topped the hill and then to sink, instead of going on, down in the sort of trajectory, it stopped and sank slowly down behind the hill, and they could see this light pulsing behind the crest of the hill. And none said, the, the 14 year old said, come on, let's run up there, uh, something may have landed, and we may be able to get something to the geological survey, which I think is pretty bright and intelligent. So the kids ran up the blacktop, taking a few minutes, turned left on the dirt road, crossed the railway track, went up round behind the hill, and as they run between the, ran between the houses, several of the people come out on the verandas and they said, what's going on? And one of the younger kids said, um, a flying saucer has landed, uh, picking up, I mean, he, he, one of the, the little ones, you see. Mrs. May and a young man aged 18, who had just joined the National Guard, I think, or the services or something, was visiting with her, other people came out and they grabbed a big flashlight because it was just getting dark and they saw this huge thing lying in a field about two fields away up by the crest so they all gathered together uh, there were in the end i'm sorry i was wrong in saying there were 14 kids playing the total party in the end was 14. so there must have been there was uh, may this is may and the young man and then there were 11 kids and then there was a little one, a little five-year-old, also named Nun, if I remember right, who was of one of the houses, and he tagged along behind. And to me, he is one of the most important witnesses in the whole case because of his extraordinary honesty. When we asked him certain things, he said, but mister, I couldn't see, I'm too, too low down. There was grass <laughs> between me. I mean, uh, these kids are the most straightforward, honest witnesses I've ever known. However, they all started out, and they ran up the ridge where there's a path. Pardon me, didn't the little boy have his dog with him? Well, a dog, a collie dog belonging to another house, not Mrs. May, uh, nor, nor the 18-year-old, but there was a collie-like dog that was there. Yes, thank you, John, for reminding me of that. It's a very important thing in the case. It started off with them. Well, they came to a gate which was, which was chained, uh, and they unchained it for being good country folk, when they gone through the gate, they rechained the gate. So you know the height of that fence? That, that, uh, that gate was, a, I think, a five bar, but it was up almost by my neck, and I'm exactly six foot tall. It was a high gate. You were actually down there after this event took place? I, we arrived there. It. Every point of it. Well, Gray Barker. Gray Barker arrived while we were there, but we had some other friends, some scientists up from Monsanto Chemical, one of whom was a great uh, photographer, Walter. And I photographed every single thing of this. We mapped it and surveyed it. We searched the ground after almost inch by inch. And uh, as as these uh, facts fall into place, I'll, I'll tell you all of But this gate is important. It was a high gate, and they rechanged it, and they went on up this path. And by which time it was very nearly dark. And they turned the flash on. The dog by this time had run ahead. Now, what they, what they saw up there, they were within... I mean, they were within paces of this thing. And I think enormous fortitude was shown by those people in walking up to a completely unknown object, which they pointed out to me a house, an outhouse, for the little barn. And I said, how big was it? And they said, about that size. We measured that little two-story barn, but this morning it was 22 foot high. They said this thing had landed with the nose, the blunt end, down. So it formed not exactly a pair, but it was more like a, um, a space. So standing up the field, big enough. And they walked up to within certainly 50 paces of it, according to their description. At which time it was standing upright and making no noise, but was, was pulsing with very bright light from cherry red to very pale orange. Uh, I'll jump ahead of my story for a minute and say it wasn't until way at the end when we had questioned all these people, or at least all the kids, together in 
various combinations of two, three, four, and five, and singly, and then mixed them up again, and we, for three days we went on, and they never deviated from their stories one single iota. And if you can tell me that a bunch of 12 kids can get together and make up a lie and stick to it for 10 days under the most grueling uh, circumstances because there were professional reporters there. Did you interrogate them individually? Individually, in, in combinations of different twos and threes and fours and all together. And over three days, and there was never in the evidence, we have it taped and we have it written down, there was never a mistake. Some added a few touches which were not exaggerations. Some of them uh, became a little doubtful as to whether it was just, as they said, the first time or the second, but they never deviated in their overall story. And I think that's very, very a powerful factor uh, in evaluating the whole thing. And it wasn't until right at the end that one of the younger kids, and I don't remember which one now, I said to him, well, weren't you tried they being burnt with this thing? He said, but this, it wasn't hot. We'd naturally, everybody supposed that because of this tremendous light that the thing was hot and was pulsing. Oh, no, no, no. He said, it's like, um, like a neon sign. He said, it's not hot. It wasn't hot. And they had kept on saying that it was black. And I said, well, if it's pulsing cherry red to orange, how do you say it's black? And they said, well, it was obviously a black object which was giving out this light. All right. Well, they go along, they lit the flash. The dog had run ahead. And all around this object, there was a thick mist, looked like a ground mist, a patch of it, lying on the side of the hill. Now, you do get these patches of mist uh, at sundown, sometimes in little coals up on a hill. And they had assumed that it was that. Well, they stratify, Ivan. They, they very seldom lie along the side of a hill, not as much as they would on a definite strata. No, yeah. uh, no, no, excuse no. me. In, in that climate, uh, especially after the tremendously heavy rains, I have seen this little sort of scooped-out cold on the side of a hill actually filled with mist, and it's sort of filling over the edge, almost like a treacle. Well, actually, it holds there like water would with a definite top level, doesn't it? No, it sticks on the side in some cases. You right? get a patch right over an area where the soil may be particularly moist, and just for a few minutes while it's coming out at sundown, you get a, just a, like a round blob on the side, and they're used to that, and they thought that's what it was. But the dog ran into this mist, going barking at this object, according to their story. He immediately set up a howl and took off practically with the speed of the light, down to the village and was subsequently found having vomited all over a veranda and uh, subsequently died. Um, now, in other words, evidence of poison. Yeah, leave that aside for the moment. In other words, it was a gas. They said it was a ghastly smell, and this is what was in the report. A ghastly smell of hot molten metal. And they got the smell, although only one of them bent down and got his head in the gas. And that was the one of the youngsters. No, the 18-year-old. The 18-year-old boy. Yes, I have to skip ahead of my story because this is what happened. They had this this flash. They were looking at the object, and then suddenly one of the kids behind said, "Look up in the tree." Now there was one oak tree growing isolated right on the top of the ridge, and there's a little pathway at the bottom. This oak tree was on a bank, a three-foot bank on the left of the pathway. The big object was a little bit further down the hill to the right, if you follow me. This is to the left. The first uh, branch going out of the oak tree, which was a clear branch, when measured from the underneath of the branch to the, to the path on which they were standing was 12 foot 6 inches about. Now, they pointed, this kid pointed up to this branch, and underneath the branch, uh, apparently suspended in the air, was a creature or a thing or an object about the size of a very heavy set man but obviously contained in some kind of suit or what looks from their drawings, their composite drawing, they all did sketches, and we put a composite of it. It looks exactly like one of the most modern naval diving uh, suits, which is solid. The person is inside, it has a pair of artificial arms in front that you can crank. The head goes into a headpiece, which has a, a glass plate in the front, uh, silicone glass plate, and it's got uh, lights in it so that you can see in the dark. And the whole thing is, is uh, suspended in water, mostly by gas tanks, so that there's no great weight on the wire. So the wire that lets it down is nothing much more than an anchor and has the telephone cable and so on going. Now, this thing was for all the world like that in the drawings. Um, at first, they thought it was a 12-foot giant thing standing there because the bottom half of it, if it had any, 
was lost behind a lot of little uh, tall grass and uh, briars. And the stuff. mist, too, covered it. No, the mist was down to the right by the big office. Down to the right. This was perfectly cleared up to the left on this little bank. And the first the bank, and then all this, this vegetation, this herbage growing on it, and this thing was sticking out of the top of the herbage, but underneath the first limb of the tree, if you follow me. Uh, they thought it was a coon at first because they saw what they saw with two eyes. They described them as being pale blue, uh, curled close together, and like very dim flashlight beams. But coming out of the plate glass window on the front of the head of this whatever it was, they were fixed beams. But the thing was turning slowly around, waving from left to right and right to left, as if it was searching the horizon with these beams. I may interject here that that particular point is the highest in the whole area and standing where that object was you can see 14 light beacons scattered over the mountains away over West Virginia and down into Virginia and right back up the other side. Um, in other words, somebody suggested that this thing was looking for its colleagues or was looking to find out where it was. But apparently when the flashlight came on the object tilted over so that these two little beams came down and concentrated on them and then immediately began to, began to silently drift through the air sort of um, in a half circle towards them and around to the left to go down from its left to go down towards the big pulsing object, the red thing that was lying in the field. So scared were they when this tremendous thing came towards them, which was of a sort of aluminum gray color, but reflecting uh, the color of the bushes and such, which gave the idea of greenness, because one of his little men, green men, always left in newspaper edition. They were so scared, the guy dropped the flash, and he bent over to pick it up, and in doing so, he got his head into this, into this ground mist. Well, uh, jump ahead again, he became so violently ill, as a result, they called a doctor half an hour later down to the house, and with, uh, didn't use a stomach pump, but everything short of it. And also it seemed to have had an extraordinary psychological effect on him because he was a, a fine, upstanding young man. But he absolutely and positively refused, even the next day, to go back up that hill. It seemed, and he was in a frightful state that night. The doctor was really worried about him. He was completely knocked out. However, but of course they all took off. And I don't blame them when this thing started to sail through the air towards them. How about the gate? Well, I know, John, you like the gate part. I got this from the littlest one of all. A uh, little, I think his name was Johnny Nunn. Uh, I was asking him at various points, well, what happened when you came to the gate? And, uh, no, not that kind of gate at all. This was a five-barred gate, and, a, and there was a space between the parts of wood was certainly not more than a, a foot. Twelve inches. Twelve inches. I said, well, well, what happened when you came to the gate? And he said, well, I don't know, don't rightly know, mister. He said, I didn't try the gate. He said, I went under the hedge because I'm small. But he said, I know that Mrs. May took it in one. She went clean over the top. <laughs> and he said, some of them, I think, went through the gate, mister. Most of them couldn't tell at that point what they had done. But anyhow, they cleared the gate in one. The Olympics missed some good candidates. They sure did. But it would be impossible to take the time to open up the gate again. Well, they weren't taking time, brother. Not, not then. They were making time. They weren't taking it. And they were right back down to the house. Well, uh, to finish off this part of the story, we only found, much later on, after a considerable amount of questioning all over the district, we found a farmer who lived on a mountain, not a mountain, on a, on a hill, about three miles away to the southeast was the only person who had had a pair of binoculars on this object. He thought that the house was on fire. Uh, but it began to look funny, and he couldn't see very well. It was about three mountain peaks or three hill peaks away. So he went inside, he got out an old pair of binoculars that you showed me. They were pre-World uh, War One, And he is the only person we know who was able to state or make any statement as to what happened to that great big object. What happened to the little one, I don't know. It, it looked took her most of it was trying to get back into the big one. Uh, but he watched the big object, and he, he said that for a matter of 10 to 15 minutes, it continued to pulse. And it, uh, it pulsed the same colors, but getting redder and redder, and weaker and weaker amount of light. And he felt very sure that the whole object itself was diminishing in size. And he said it finally disappeared about 20 minutes later in a pinpoint of light, and then it was complete darkness. 
Now, when the, the gang who had been up to it got back down to the houses, uh, they, uh, a lot of people began to gather. There was great rumpus. They sent for a doctor, and they tried to, they gave the telephone of one of the houses, and they telephoned for the local police to come. But the local police were already out investigating something else that I shall just end off with in a moment. Uh, they called a lot of the men together, and they got shotguns, and they formed a party, and they went out to investigate. At least they said they did. They were back in extremely short order, stating categorically that they could find nothing. But they did not get going for at least half an hour after the incident, uh, by which time, according to this farmer, this thing had winked out. It did not go away. It had just disappeared inside you. Therefore, they may be perfectly honest in saying that they had not seen anything. And I think they may be honest in saying that they went up there because they did report this perfectly ghastly and nauseating smell of molten metal. That's peculiar. Now, where was the road patrol? This is what we found out when we got there. That's that side of the story. We then started asking around all over the district for the tape recorder and such. Did you see the thing? And they all said, oh, that there flying saucer, ha, ha, ha. No, but we saw the meteor. Well, then we started mapping. <coughs> we had a big aerial map of the whole area. And we started mapping where they, at what time, they said they saw said meteor. And then we came up with one very interesting discovery. There had not been one or two, there had been six. Uh, six different objects, six identical, identical, but different objects. One, two, three, four, five, six. Mm -hmm. They were all traveling, let's say, to make it perfectly simple, from about north to south. The one on the east side was spotted all along a line by about 30, 40 people. It passed right over the Sutton Airport and was then reported during that night all the way down to Alabama in a perfectly straight line, according to what the newspaper and other sources get. That was just one of them? That was the most easternmost of them. They were traveling along a straight front almost exactly five of our miles apart. The only time they appeared to have deviated from that from the reports was when they went around a hill or a mountain. But they were keeping on a steady course from north to south, traveling not too far, I should imagine by, we asked the kids, well, put your finger in the air and pass it from left to right. Show us how fast, it, uh, how long it took to get across Flatwoods. And it took, uh, well, that would be about jet speed, as you demonstrated here. Uh, oh, no. no. Jets would go, would go on like that. Depends on their altitude. Yeah, this thing was not more than 200 foot up from where they were standing. And it took, I would say, radio time, uh, um, 25 seconds to pass from the hill, uh, 45 degree angle from there to there. No, but the way they showed it was going, they were going pretty slowly. There was a steady speed. Right, eastern one, number one, went straight on down, got away. Number two was this flatwood one that landed. I call that a landing. Number three came around a hill, went over a, a road, and crashed into the side of a mountain. That was Gray Barker and I, and Eddie went up and investigated that. And that's where we found this peculiar stuff. Was the ground seared at that point? Well, if I may leave that for a moment, I'll come to it. Number three crashed on, on, a, on another mountain top on the land of two remarkable young men who have farmed their farm all their lives, although they are both crippled. Uh, they do it all by tractor. But they cannot farm the knoll on their upland because it's full of rocks, and so they can't get in so they farm. So they, they couldn't persuade anybody to go and investigate this knoll where they had seen this, this one land their eyes. The, that's number four. Number five blew up in the sky right in front of four members, six members of our National Caving Society, Cave Exploration Society, um, at the house of the people called the McLeans. They were sitting on the veranda after having been out on a caving expedition, and they saw this thing come around the mountain, was a maze, and it blew up right over some fields. And uh, Mrs. Williams, one of the members uh, who was there, told me afterwards with complete innocence that a lot of kind of ashes shot out of it and scattered all over the land. I said, you mean you're supposed to be a geologist and you didn't even go to pick up some? <laughs> and, <laughs> and number six, number six missed and went right on and was seen all the way down in a parallel line uh, to Alabama almost as well. So uh, one went on, two landed, three crashed into this mountain top, uh, four crashed into the mountain top, five blew up in the air and six got away. 
There's some very good reasons for that. Now, you're like a series of unguided missiles, doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> but except for this one, the landing one, if it was a missile, if it had missed that mountaintop, which it did, it would have sailed right on over the next valley and hit the next hill on the side. But it didn't. It had stopped and landed. And I know that it landed because where it landed, it had pushed a it had pushed a, a, a circular depression into the ground, but exactly vertical to the center of the earth. You see what I mean? Not a, a flosh downwards. In other words, it wasn't a glancing blow. Not a glancing blow. It had come down and it would have been weight, and a lot of weight, because the grass there was an overgrown field and it was knee high, I was waist high, and full of little twigs and bushes. All that was completely flattened. The ground itself was flattened, and there were some considerable stones, not boulders, but stones the size of a man's head lying in there, and they'd be pushed right down into the ground. Well, this all had considerable mass and weight, though. Definitely. And also, at, um, at the three points, equidistant around it, there were three holes jammed into the ground at the edge of the circle which looked exactly as if a cart horse with a foot, <coughs> with, a, with a hoop about two foot across, had been jammed down into the ground, as if a tripod, it stood on a tripod, that's what it looked like. Exactly similar marks we found up uh, where number three crashed. Um, there were five of them, Eddie Schoenenberger, Gray Barker, uh, Raymond Walters, and one other gentleman from Monsanto and myself. We had reports of this, of very reliable, I have a lot of time to go into it. We searched this mountain, uh, mountainside on our hands and knees, clawing our way up because it was so steep. We found nothing until we got to the top. And over the top, there was a little swamp up there uh, with small trees behind the big forest, tall trees. And in there, I found a huge stack of skid marks which had knocked these bushes down. And there, were, there was a depression in there and also two of these tremendous hoof-like things pushed into the ground. <coughs> uh, and beyond it, a whole mass of little pieces, little coils of white plastic-like material scattered all over the ground. I'll tell you about that. Ivan, go going back to the depression, how large was that depression? Well, the depression itself was about uh, 15 foot across. We measured it, 15 or 16 foot. But you couldn't quite tell exactly where it ran out to the side because it was a... Uh, a dish-shaped depression. Okay. The reason I asked, are you are you familiar with the experimental work that uh, Mr. Monsieur Kawanda is now doing in Canada? What, on, on, on the disc? Yeah. Uh, well, I've read something about it, but I don't know anything about it. Uh, would it have any connection with such things? Well, I'm just wondering if it could have been an experimental model. Well, he's well, been working at it for some time. Yes, that's true. But wait, before we get on to that, let me just conclude our report from down there, and then I'd like to, to take that up, because it's a nasty one. Um, and then that. Uh, I don't think those the machines are made to dissolve, are they? Not quite. No. <laughs> to the contrary. <laughs> Nor also do they um, give out with some kind of plastic or something. No, they give out uh, flame. With flame, too, yeah. Well, this was definitely cold at these proportions, we believe. In each case, incidentally, because uh, number three here, he thought, uh, the fellow who saw it, he thought that this was a flaming aeroplane came around the, came around the corner of the hill. This one we, we investigated. Well, anyhow, uh, to conclude this part, uh, Eddie Schoenenberger happened to be looked back up at the trees from the direction in which number three had come before it was starting to crash in the swamp, and he... He said, look at that. And there was a whole treetop knocked off and several other branches all recently shattered and always make a hole through the top of the tree. Was there any odor around there? No, because we were five, six days off. This was about a week after the other one had occurred. Well, wasn't there, uh, I think I heard that there was the local editor of the newspaper or one of the members of the police department oh. went over and got down on the ground on all fours and he noticed that there was still some stench remaining there? As a matter of fact, the principal of the posse, the people reported it as flatwoods. Then the posse went up and they were so nauseated they wanted to get out of there as quick as possible. And they said it was absolutely overpowering. In the meantime, the, uh, the road patrol was unable to come because they were investigating number three. But the local police arrived 
from um, uh, Braxton County, it's not Braxton County, I'm sorry, from, from the town of Sutton. They fell down on their hands and knees, didn't have to. They noticed the smell, and the uh, very charming gentleman I met down there, the um, uh, the owner of the uh, Republican paper, the two, the Republican and Democratic paper, the uh, head of the Democratic paper was deeply interested in this, and he brought Mrs. May and uh, the young fellow whose name I come from up to New York for a, for a show, I think, with Ed Sullivan or something here on this. Um, and they were gone while we were down there. But this other gentleman had personally been up there that night. He's very, very much alive to, to local affairs and happenings. And he was up there right smart during the night, and he smelt it too. So the next morning, there was a lot of confusion. There's always red herring that's drawn across these things. A lot of people started turning up. And they said that the grass there was covered with oil. Well, it wasn't. Um, the gra all the grass there is covered with a kind of oil. It's called oil grass or tar grass. You can pass your hand over a whip of it when it's growing and pull it up, and your hand will be sticky afterwards and has a rather lovely aromatic smell. That, I, I'm assured by all the local people, they had nothing whatsoever to do with this perfectly ghastly stench which had occurred from this, from this uh, place, uh, this uh, thing or whatever it was that landed. Well, just to... to um, to round up this whole thing, Walter, and the benefit of our friends down there who want to hear this report on taste, uh, there are certain aspects of the whole um, uh, phenomena which are of great interest, and that is this, that at that particular time, which was September, I think 1953, or I can't remember, uh, there had been some enormous forest fires in Texas, uh, Louisiana, Alabama, and we were receiving in New York here even a very high smoke count in the air. In fact, we had a haze, you recall it, mm -hmm. and we had white ash landing. Point number one. Point number two on this particular score, which all of which was pointed out to me by the chemists down there, uh, that block of hills over which these six objects came looked down into a series of valleys running parallel. And those valleys are filled with coal mines which are belching smoke all the time. Monsanto chemical plants and other enormous chemical plants and other installations for which that part of the, of the country is famous. Belching smoke and carbonaceous gases of all kinds. The wind happened to be blowing straight up these valleys up this mountain. There was the smoke from the forest fires that was all this accumulation. And there was a barrier of carbonaceously filled air rising at the heads of these valleys. But Object number one and object number six were to the left and right of that area. And they seemed to have got away. And it was pointed out to me that all the others, it looked as if as soon as they hit a highly polluted atmosphere, uh, something went wrong with either if they were animals, their breathing, if they were machines with their air intake or something. In other words, that if they are extraterrestrial creatures of one kind or another, they were apparently doing a swoop down into our atmosphere to take a look, see, and then get in formation and go on up again. And what actually happened was they hit some of the wrong kind of air and something went wrong with them. They went out of control. The Flatwoods one was able to land and have a look around to see what had happened to his colleagues or where he was. Numbers two and three uh, hit hills fell out of control and number, and number five, number three and four, and number five blew up in the air. I come um, to the end of what I had to say, really. There's an enormous amount more to it which I could go on almost indefinitely, but I think that's enough detail for, for anybody to be asked to absorb at one go. Uh, I, my personal opinion I'd just like to throw in is that, that there's, um, none of those people were telling lies, uh, those from Blackwoods especially, that the 400-odd other people whom we interviewed, including the young man who reported to the police um, number three incident, the crash, and those young farmers, were certainly not, not lying. They were a highly skeptical group. They did not believe in flying saucers if they'd heard of them. Uh, but they did say that there were these objects in the sky. They had their times down pat. I mean, we'd say, well, what time was it? They said, well, let me see now. Dawn comes to the and I used to put my porch light on and so on, so that would make it. And they pin it down within the minute. And they all jived all over. And uh, their descriptions gave exactly the course of these things on an aerial map. And I don't think those people were lying. I do think there were those six objects there. But what they were, of course, I have the foggiest notion. The last payoff was, John, this, that we did have this funny white stuff analyzed. My friends took it down to the, uh, one of the labs in Monsanto, and they couldn't be much better there. They had this numerous uh, spectro spectrographic analysis machinery. 
they were unable to find out what it was. It seemed to be a, uh, of a plastic nature, but to be of an organic structure. The only thing they could think was that it looked more like a, the dried-up skin of a snake's egg than anything else. However, one of the lab assistants down there managed to soften it up. They've been trying to soften it up in any, everything. And he said, why don't you try water? Which they did. <laughs> and one of, these little, well, one of these little rolls of stuff, which were only about the size of my little finger, when stretched out, measured nine and a half inches. And I would like to know what snake's egg found in the United States or anywhere else uh, from which you can get a strip nine and a half inches long. Uh, the parting shot was a humorous one made by John DeBarry. When I tell you about all this, he said, uh-oh. Perhaps they were space people, but perhaps they're reptiles and we're looking for somewhere to lay an egg. If you're still with us, thanks for listening. Again, in the show notes, you can find links to a lot of this old UFO archive audio at the internetarchive.org site. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time... Remember to always have a backup plan because you never know when your week is just going to not allow you to talk about Leah Haley as much as you want to. And watch the skies and stuff. Bye. Thanks for listening.